Welcome to the 10th episode of our podcast Empower for Climate with Shanino O'Keefe and Stefan Ksenger. Today, the topic is about a technology, about wind energy, about the most recent developments of wind power around the world. Wind power, which is more and more an important source for electricity generation, um, also as an important answer to the climate crisis. Nice to be with you again, Shanine. It's a pleasure to speak with you today about this topic. Welcome. And uh, yeah, how are you today? Good, thanks. And how about you? I'm good as well. Thank you. Although news from around the world are still not that encouraging. Um, but of course, uh, we are now springtime and that lifts a little bit the spirit. Although what we know is that the climate climate change is progressing, as we just heard statistics from March. Obviously, March was again one of the warmest um, on record. Um, so although we don't even feel it nowadays, uh, that this is something that should uh, be a warning signal again for us. How, how did you see the last uh, two weeks since we had our last podcast? What what were the main news that kind of strike you? Well, it's definitely warmer here. And if you look at the Arctic, it's massively warmer. And um, you're seeing really disruptions. But you saw the recent news where um, I think it was just in the last two weeks where they're talking about the uh, the Gulf Stream, which has already slowed by 20%, but now it's looking like fairly quickly it will slow around 40%. And that could actually mean massive death or is li very likely to mean massive death in the oceans. So that's very scary. Yeah, well, we had this uh, about tipping points not that long ago, the podcast, which really kind of uh, made very clear that there is really very scary developments um, happening. And the Gulf Stream uh, certainly has a very, very big impact on the climate in Europe. Uh, and obviously things are about to, to be out of control is maybe the wrong word because they've never been un, in our control. But the way we've used to live in certain parts of the world is now getting really more and more difficult because if climate changes as we are seeing it now, then uh, this is not going to continue. As you Perhaps a better word more. to use is is we've we've lived, we and all humans have lived with stable climate and now it's destabilizing and that, destabil that uh, destabilizing process um, once again is out of our control, but we are causing the destability and we could stop causing that and allow the, the climate to adjust for itself, which is what it's done the last 10,000 years, where it's stayed within plus and minus one degree approximately. Yeah, that is uh, when when we look at uh, the uh, how human civilization developed over the last probably we can say 10,000 years, um, that kind of change has obviously never happened like what we see now in the last 10 or 20 years. So we are uh, obviously now 
in that situation where we really need to act a lot. And we want to talk today about uh, one of these ways that we can uh, encounter the climate crisis, although it's very, very hard to stop delay that. But we must do whatever we can, of course, to do that. And part of that is uh, certainly a part of the answer, of the obvious answers is in the energy supply, uh, because uh, the way we've been using energy, in particular in the industrialized countries um, during the last 200 years, uh, mainly burning coal, oil, and gas, and with that fueling the industrialization, obviously has led to that disaster in which we are now. So the the moving away from those emitting energy sources is certainly the most important single step um, that we need to do as fast as possible. Absolutely. So my knowledge on wind is not nearly as as extensive as yours. Like I understand it as an engineer and have read quite a bit, but you've worked in the industry for how many years? Well, actually, I, I mean, my son called me once a renewable energy person. So I think that is uh, uh, describing me well. Um, I've been with renewable energy. I, I had uh, actually five days ago, I had my 25th anniversary uh, working for and with renewable energy. And then working for wind energy, focusing a bit more on that, that is now 20, 22 years. Uh, so, yeah, and it's very interesting because my perspective is uh, from my education being a political scientist uh, more the political one so i think our our views on this can be very well complementary but indeed i've been uh, uh, observing not only observing also trying to have an influence on how the yeah the, the wind power globally develops and that is a very of course somehow also encouraging success story if you look at it over those 20 even like, let's say 40 years when modern wind power started. So tell us a little bit, since you've been involved for at least two decades, tell us a little bit about when did it start? Well, actually, wind power is really a traditional source of energy. So uh, we know that thousands of years ago, people started probably the first were the, the wind ships, sailing boats, sailing, using wind power for sailing. and then. It's not so clear, but certainly more than 1,000 years ago, the first windmills were built, which used the wind for grinding in, in Persia, in, in the um, Muslim world. And then they came to Europe, um, with the traditional windmills, like yeah, from England, I recently heard also it's around like 800 years ago, uh, the first records are kept for the first windmill. And so that technology was very important also for the Netherlands. If you look at, for example, the Netherlands, most of the land is under sea level, which is now becoming more and more a problem because of climate change and rising sea levels. But thanks to the, the power of the wind, they could get the water out of the land. And so you can say that the traditional windmills were the basis of the rise of the Netherlands because they could use the land which otherwise would be under the sea level. But when we talk about today's, uh, like using wind for electricity generation, that started, it's interesting, in, in the 1880s, in several corners of the world in parallel, 
in the United States, in France, in Scotland, and in Denmark. So they were inventors who started to, to think about, of course, that is when electricity became popular, starting probably in Europe and North America. And th that's where when the first windmills were, were kind of connected with a generator for, for power generation. And then there were some really efforts Actually, in, during that time, there was the first uh, system in Denmark by Paul Lacour, who even generated hydrogen at that mm -hmm. time and had a, a, a lighting system from that. But then once there was an explosion, he gave up. So he noticed it's too dangerous. It's funny because this is a little bit close to the hydrogen discussion that we have today. Then in the 1920s, 30s, there were the first kind of companies getting involved on an on a industrial scale. Some people tried to convince the Nazis in Germany to invest in windmills, but the Second World War kind of took attention away from all these efforts. And then uh, there was this kind of um, floody, flood from oil and coal was obviously there in abundance. So people lost interest in what they saw as old-fashioned technologies. And only the Soviet Union still installed wind turbines in the 50s, 60s, tens of thousands, um, until the oil crisis came in the 70s. And then some of the Western countries started again. And actually it was um, Jimmy Carter played a very important role because he was then the president, end of the 70s, who started looking into seriously into solar and wind energy. He also installed the solar uh, uh, panel on the White House, which then Reagan removed later. But that was the time when the first windmills on kind of on a larger scale were installed. So you can say it's like 40 years ago, that's the modern, the history of today's wind power. Then in the 80s, Denmark also invested a lot Germany joined that, and then in the 90s with uh, some policy regulations like feed-in tariffs, then there was really kind of the, the explosion started to happen. And I would say really the final uh, launch was the German Renewable Energy Act, which was adopted in the year 2000, uh, which created a really big market. And uh, at that time... <clears throat> We had, looking just at China 20 years ago, had an installed capacity of 500 megawatt around. And now we are close to 1 million megawatt. So it's an impressive success story. According to our official statistics, we started in the year 1980 with 8 megawatt. And now it's 1 million megawatt. So that is quite amazing. And actually, at the beginning, I think the driver was more the... Uh, uh, not environmental concerns, but the, the scarcity of oil suddenly, to some degree also environment, but to a lesser degree. And people understanding also that nuclear power is not solution, just the need for energy. That's how I would say that. When did you, if I may ask you, when did you, do you remember when you came for the first time across wind energy as an option? In several ways, I suppose it's sort of, you don't really necessarily come across a certain energy type immediately, but definitely it was Netherlands wind, windmills was, were the first time I 
came across it strongly and began to understand how the Netherlands used windmills, um, as you say, for pumping water to keep um, to keep them, uh, but keep to keep land viable land, which is actually below sea level, which is quite amazing. Like the Netherlands say, God built the the world, but we built Netherlands. So, or some Netherland people say that anyway. So I'm very impressed with the Netherlands engineering. They're quite in impressive. So if we look at modern wind power generation, what would be the main drivers? Yeah, I think, uh, as I said, it was, uh, that is really interesting when you look at it, let's say, talking about the 1970s with the oil crisis. I remember very well, I was a child, the second oil crisis and these long queues in front of the, the fuel stations because people suddenly there was this oil shock that the um, uh, OPEC said we stop uh, delivering oil. Uh, so obviously the industrialized countries, they got really shocked. They thought, okay, we need to look for alternative options. And so that I I'd really uh, see this as the initial and main driver. And that is still very important in many parts of the world. Of course, cost-wise, it was not really something that uh, at the beginning people thought would really be able to compete with cheap coal. So that's where we are now as well. And then I'd say, yes, from middle of the 80s onwards with Chernobyl happening, it was clear that no nuclear is, is certainly not an option, also became too expensive. But then when did the discussion and the, the, the public discussion, I say, about climate change start? That was certainly in the 1990s. There was the first, uh, in Rio, the first uh, big UN environment conference um, where people became more and more aware that this planet is suffering many environmental crises. At that time, the climate crisis was just seen as one of them. Um, but the arguments, environmental arguments became stronger and stronger, I would say. And of course, today they are the main drivers. And of course, now with the war in Ukraine and the energy crisis that we see around that, energy access again becomes another driver. But I'd say, and nowadays, of course, economics, because uh, oil, gas, everybody knows how volatile the prices are. And uh, some, I mean, recently very expensive. When you build a wind turbine now, then you know what the price of your electricity will be for the next 20 years. It's just predictable. And they are just cheap as well. So I'd say there's been a change in, in uh, the uh, motivation, but the arguments for renewables, for wind power became, in any case, stronger and stronger. Yeah, I would actually say Australia didn't suffer the oil crisis nearly as badly. So we had a different perspective there. Which countries would you say have been the pioneering countries? Yeah, it's it's really interesting that uh, it was the US who did the first steps after we had indeed the Soviet Union or what is Ukraine actually today. Um that was the country which had the first research center for wind power, scientific research center in the 1920s. 
Um, and then in the Soviet Union, as I said, there, there were tens of thousands of small windmills installed, but there is not really a continuity because uh, we don't see much kind of continuity in terms of uh, persons or, or companies. So really what Jimmy Carter did, that is, I would say, that started that development with the US, but then with Reagan, uh, kind of they, they pulled out of it, but then Europe took over. And it was certainly and still is one of the most important countries and drivers has been Denmark. Uh, then in, in Europe, Germany joined and um, became the, the largest market. Then Spain also a little bit later. And then it's interesting to see what happened outside Europe. Um, India uh, joined quite early. And that was very interesting also how that happened because um, it was textile companies who needed electricity and reliable electricity. So they bought wind turbines from Europe and then they noticed how reliable they are and how cheap they can produce electricity. And then one of these companies, which was originally a textile company, became the largest Indian uh, manufacturer of wind turbines because they changed the business. They noticed, oh, that is works so well, we will sell wind turbines in the future became Swissland. So India became a strong market. And uh, nowadays, of course, then, and that happened uh, in, in like 20 years ago, China got into that. And uh, obviously, there was a decision taken at some point of time, saying that, uh, yeah, for China, we need to go for domestic energy sources, I would, again, emphasize this domestic, uh, and China now stands for like uh, more than half of the world market. Uh, we published just the, the installation figures of the last year. And out of those 88 gigawatt of new installed capacity, that just to, to give you an idea, is around the peak demand of, of a country like Germany. So this is what the world installed last year, 88 gigawatt of additional wind turbines. And more than half of that, 48 gigawatt were installed in China alone. 48 gigawatt, that is yeah, exceeding the power demand of many like medium-sized countries. So China is, is leading in this now, but suddenly also we see in other parts of the world, there are some African markets which are growing. Brazil suddenly is now amongst the top markets. Brazil, which is already very strong in other renewables. So they have a lot of hydropower, they have a lot of bioenergy. Of course, solar is strong there as well because there's a lot of sun. Uh, but Brazil has suddenly become the third largest market last year. So it's it's good to see that it's really kind of a universal um, uh, development that we see all around the world. Um, countries, I mean, the wind is everywhere. Uh, countries almost everywhere. Of course, some are more investing than others. And the US are also now back. And with what Joe Biden just announced as this, what they call Inflation Reduction Act, giving a lot of additional support, we can expect that uh, US and China will compete in the near future about who, who will do more. So would you say that um, environmental concerns are playing a role here or is it not just that? Is there other aspects? And when did the discussion of climate change start to play a role? Yeah, I mean, when I started personally, I think that was kind of that 
that point, uh, when uh, really the environmental concerns, like 25 years ago, um, became really strong. And just a little bit earlier, 1997, the Kyoto Protocol was adopted, um, which was not really effective. So it's been very interesting that there was an agreement achieved globally when the US also pulled out of that agreement just after that was uh, adopted by or ratified. And then more and more people started to understand that, that the Kyoto Protocol, which was not really focusing on the uh, on the solution side, on renewables, but kind of emission trading, et cetera, that that just didn't work because it didn't bring emissions down. I mean, we're still suffering from increasing emissions, although Kyoto is now how many? 16 years? No, 26, sorry. <laughs> 26 years ago. 26 years, yeah. 26 years ago, and it was ratified and had no impact in a positive way in the sense of reducing emissions. Um, I would even dare to say that the opposite, because it created amongst some people, also amongst some environmental groups, the kind of, we are now satisfied, we've achieved something. So there was less pressure, but that was kind of also the turning point where people started to understand that that doesn't work. Okay, now we have to focus on the solutions. And up to that point, I would say the renewables community and the climate community were kind of separate. Uh, but that is when um, the the two spheres started to merge. That That's my impression. I don't know how you... Uh, started to get into this and how you came across how important the solutions are? Well, as an engineer, the first thing I did was work uh, probably about a year or a year and a half just on solutions because I thought, well, fixing climate was just um, just about finding solutions. And um, then after we presented our solutions in May 20. Uh, 2018, I realized, no, there's nothing about solutions. It was all about the will of politics. And that's why I believe so much in striking and in um, civil disobedience, because the solutions have been there since since the day began. It's all about, um, yeah, okay, fine, technology has improved, don't get me wrong, but oh, no. if we had the will to really start properly, we would have prioritized um, the research and those technologies. We would have pushed them forward and we would have tried them. And that would have meant that we would have um, progressed a lot faster. Using old technologies actually means that we don't invest in the new ideas. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, uh, I'm on your side and I, I still have an, a little bit additional view on that because uh, uh, my perception has always been that it's been one of the main tasks of some of these meetings, and it started in Rio in 1992, to not talk about the solutions, because it was very clear by those from the fossil, in particular energy sector, that the solutions would destroy their business models. So in 1992, at this, what some praised as a big breakthrough, and to some degree it was, because for the first time the world came together, but they really tried to avoid 
the word renewable energy in any declaration. And my first uh, UN climate change conference is almost 20 years ago in Montreal in Canada. Um, I found it shocking that there were thousands of people and nobody ever used the word renewable energy. And of course, we know there are other solutions as well, but probably two thirds or more needs to be done by converting to that. So avoiding to talk about it, that's been the strategy. That has obviously been the strategy. So it's been my approach and my work to, to make sure, well, we just go there and then we speak about it. So that's why I go to these climate change conferences. Now they all speak about it. So the situation is a little bit different because nobody can uh, avoid to speak about the solutions. Um, and the approach is now different, but uh, that's maybe we can, we can, you can see this from from wind energy, for example, how to then stop and delay and, and refer to problems that are not really there. I think you've actually already mentioned this. You said that there was um eighty-eight was a gigaton, a giga gigawatt. Gigawatt, thank you. Hmm. And forty-eight of that was from China. So that's the actual world capacity today. Capacity today, 88 that was, gigawatt. That was added. We are now at 936 gigawatt of global capacity. So it's kind of the growth rate last year was around um, uh -huh. more than 10%. Okay, we're at 900. Oh, great. Okay, so that's the world capacity. How much capacity of that? Which country is the largest? Do you know? Yes, of course. We have. China, which is now close to 400,000 megawatt out of the total capacity, which is at, um, at the moment uh, more than 900,000. Um, we have United States, which is at 144 gigawatt. And then Germany with 66 gigawatt. Um, India has uh, now crossed 40. It's now 42, around 42 Spain with around 30 gigawatts. So these are the big, the top top five markets. And they've been top five for like more than a decade. And what so, was China again? That was in gigawatts as well, right? Yeah, that China is now at close to 400 gigawatt. Okay. And I think it's important also to mention what is the share of wind power in the different parts of the world. It's, it's uh, overall, I think it's around 8% of the global electricity demand. Um, some countries like Denmark is now well above 40%. I think there should be, depends of course, always on the year. If you have a little bit windier year, then it's more, it's close to 50%. Um, Uruguay, which is a, also a small country, also has that range. But uh, let's say Germany, which is a big industrialized country, of course, with around 25% of the electricity. That means every fourth kilowatt hour is now coming from wind energy in Germany. Uh, Sweden is also doing quite well. And China is now uh, with very strong growth rates is, is around at the global average. So it's, uh, and you see, of course, some countries which have invested almost nothing. Um, well, let's mention there's some of the oil countries, including Russia, for example. I've personally been trying to advise the Russian government to introduce wind power because of course there's huge potential and we've had 
excellent uh, discussions on a very high level, meeting the Deputy Prime Minister of Russia in 2017. Um, and there was really an interest, but I, I understood that this country went away that uh, the government and the, the whole system is, is very much relying on income from gas, coal, etc. And you see the, the result now. So that is a country which is, for that reason, totally behind its potentials. I mean, Russia could supply the world with its wind power potential, there's no doubt, but has uh, a capacity of around two gigawatts. So they did something, but rather minor. And there's other countries, uh, also many of those kind of oil producers, which also have not invested much so far. So what is today the structure of the wind sector? Which countries, we've already gone through who are the leaders, but what's the actual structure? Like, is wind dominating the energy sector and actually driving things, for example, in Germany? And perhaps uh, we talked about smaller countries like um, Denmark and Uruguay, where you've actually got 40% of the market. So what are we seeing there? It's very interesting because at the beginning, of course, in particular in Europe, you had uh, very many small players, and that was driven by cooperatives often. One of the first, or the first megawatt turbine was actually built. It's in it's at a place where it still exists more than 40 years ago. Twin turbine, it's called. It was kind of a group of hippies who just said, we will do this. We show that it works. At the same time, three years later or four years later, a group of the largest German industrial uh, corporations, they built a turbine of a similar capacity and they said they and they failed. Some say they intentionally failed to prove that wind energy doesn't work. I think that story reflects very well that just 200 kilometers north of where the really leading technology leaders failed, um, that this group of self-made uh, people succeeded. And such groups became the drivers of the development in terms of developing the technology and many of the still existing wind turbine manufacturers, even those which were later taken over and they're part of GE today or Siemens, they started very small. So these were kind of individuals who, uh, who did something in their, in the, at home. Um, this is how it started. Uh, cooperatives who invested and then sold the electricity. And then Denmark, Germany were the first countries where we got a reasonable remuneration for electricity. And that created the kind of social movement, even I would call it, which really allowed that technology to spread. People were not primarily focusing on generating, maximizing profit, but to do something good for their community, to do something good for the environment. Um, and that's how it grew. Of course, now we are in a totally different situation because in particular wind power is, as you rightly said, it's now an, a major component of the electricity supply. So the traditional energy companies try to take over. And that is something that we can see now all over the world. Um, not often kind of explicitly, but 
you see this in the way how policies are now developed, uh, squeezing out smaller investors or trying to squeeze out. You see this in some markets that, for example, India had a, a very broad diversity of medium-sized companies investing. They introduced an auction system, which at the end of the day led to only two big companies taking part in investment. And again, then a new kind of problem came up. So we really see a change from small decentralized investors to then the big energy companies taking over. And then people suddenly started because it was not anymore the, the, like the people from the village who invested and they said, we put up a wind farm, but then suddenly some companies came from outside. You see this at some places. Uh, people said, oh, what's happening there? I'm not happy. Oh, are they building something there? Something big towers? And so there was kind of a, a, a gap uh, that still is sometimes the case. So out of something that was initially driven by by a broad movement, um, it's been developing into some call it pro more professional structures. Um, but I'd say we are in the middle of um, the traditional energy companies trying to take over and secure, that's maybe how they would uh, describe it internally, not to the outside, secure their own business. Because if they don't do it, then they are out. That's what we can see. And that uh, the, the point here is just challenge here is that it's not automatically leading to more wind power or renewables because, of course, the old companies, which are still in coal and nuclear and gas, they have no interest in doing it as fast as possible. As long as they have their old assess, assets in, in coal power stations, uh, of course, they don't want others to invest then in wind power, but they will do it as much as possible, uh, as, as necessary not to lose the market share. So this is a, a challenging situation. And I think this is also a part of the explanation why we saw the uh, decline, unfortunately, in 2022, in spite of the arguments, energy supply, access, um, the climate crisis, all becoming stronger. So are we seeing a fight between decentralization and centralization? I would say that the uh, centralized, there is an energy system conflict. That is, there's no doubt. Um, because the old energy system is highly centralized. You have a few nuclear power plants. You have uh, a uranium mine, which supplies not just one, but several nuclear power plants. Or look at coal, that is very similar. And um, the new system has suddenly millions of generation points instead of just five or 10 for a country like Denmark. Let's take that as an example, similar in all around the world. And that is at first, of course, this transformation leads to conflicts. There's no doubt about it. The problem is that politicians not understanding that we need to go for a decentralized system and that decentralized system also requires different set of actors 
if politicians ignore that and not set the right frameworks, but set frameworks which are favoring the centralized actors, then this transformation doesn't work. It cannot work because there's technical reasons why it doesn't work. And you sometimes have the wrong focus, for example, on transmission grids instead of distribution grids. We need to focus much more on extending our distribution grids because on the not high le high voltage level, that's where we need to make changes. Yeah, and so we actually need um, we need to think in terms of the fact that uh, wind power is not only positive for climate crisis. Being decentralized, it's actually more resilient to um, breakdown to, to when there's failure in the system because you've got energy from many, many different sources. So a company will actually, a country will be actually far more secure. Yeah, yeah, that's what we definitely see. And uh, we need the, what scientists call cellular approach. No? So that is not anymore, you have a few big power plants and you see the problems like nowadays in France with um um, the nuclear power plants and many of them are not in operation so there's suddenly a big gap um, if you have many wind farms and some of the wind turbines are not working because they are in maintenance or there was an exit whatever it's not kind of spoiling the whole system if you build the system in the right way so yes of course and in in a uh, a cellular system where different cells are of course connected so they can support each other. But in case there's a problem in one cell, you just decouple that. And then the rest of the system can still continue. Unlike we had this situation in Europe, I think it was in 2006, um, when there was um, in in the Papenburg shipyard, shipyard in Germany, a big vessel leaving that shipyard and going to the sea. And for that, they had to decouple a, a, a high voltage power line. And they somehow made a, f a failure with that, which led to a blackout, not so much in Germany, although it was in Germany, but in the Netherlands, Belgium, France, down to Spain. Because of one problem, which this ship caused, such a situation, there's no need that that happens when you redesign the energy supply structure with wind turbines. And by the way, every individual windmill helps to stabilize the grid because of the rotating mass. I, mean, I think you are an engineer, so you will understand it, but many people don't understand that at all. Uh, they just believe wind is something uh, volatile. It's the opposite. It helps to, to stabilize the grid. Absolutely. No question at all. So what are the main barriers for wind power? We've already talked about like the, basically the big corporations getting in the way, trying to centralize and centralize the actual political system rather than allowing decentralized cellular systems and the politicians possibly not really understanding how to support uh, decentralized decision-making. What other barriers do you see? 
Yeah, I mean, we have uh, at the moment certainly uh, in this situation with the war in Ukraine, which of course we know there are other wars which are also terrible, but when you look at it, the impact on the economy, the war in Ukraine, the Russian war against Ukraine has a really deep impact because it interrupts, for example, supply chains. So we see that, uh, and I believe that this is also important reason why we saw less installations in 2022, um, because many projects couldn't be completed. So of course we don't we we shouldn't be naive and believe that this is just done on a community basis. No, we need of course also an industry. We need factories which can build those wind turbines, and so we need. And that I think is 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 one of the challenges. What you see in wind, that you see also in solar energy, uh, that these factories need to be uh, kind of all over the world so that they can supply the technology that is needed to wherever there is. Uh, and and this is all over the world um, that we need to be able to build wind farms without waiting for certain parts coming, let's say, from China, and you have to wait for a year instead of two months. Uh, that is certainly a, a major barrier. But I would really say that the main barrier is in the policy regulations that uh, we need priority for renewables. We need clear policies which are just setting an end to fossil generation. and which create kind of the space for those kind of new um, players. Actually, they are not really new, but kind of local cooperatives. That's how in many countries electrification started. But this is to some degree a regulation that we need to go back to because of this decentralized character. I mean, we need to have wind turbines if we want to have a similar level of uh, um, production of certain products. We will need them in many parts of the world. And uh, for that, we need the right regulations and not kind of giving um, or protecting a structure which is not compatible with that. And how about price? Is that a barrier? Not really anymore. Um, and I mean, on, if you just look at when you follow the statistics of the International Energy Agency or uh, whoever is publishing it, Bloomberg, they will tell you that wind and solar are now cheapest. So just from an economic viewpoint, from that kind of mainstream viewpoint, uh, I would say even more than that, because don't just look at the price per kilowatt hour, but the added value if you have a wind farm at a village it can generate a lot of income from for the local population for farmers etc and you see this in many rural areas which had no income or suffering because agricultural sector is not going well and that kind of additional income is for a country much more important than just the pure price per kilowatt hour and i mean this is even more obvious we recently spoke with our friend from Mali when we speak about a country where there is no electricity available. So just let's not forget about those unserved areas where 
making electricity available, accessible, will create totally new economic prospects. You certainly can have a fridge. You can save your tomatoes in a way or whatever you harvest um, and keep it longer and there's less waste also. This is also, by the way, not automatically leading to growth and, and, and meaning always more and wasting more. It's It's rather the opposite. We can use these things also to be more efficient, like using certain crops in that way. So I think the... A renewable energy economy is, for almost everybody, economically beneficial. Mm. Of course, not if you are the uh, owner of a one of the largest oil companies, which hasn't done anything to change. Or if you are the owner of, let's say, uh, Gazprom. So these are but, the enemies. That's Or General you... Electric, who wants some nuclear power. Yeah, but I mean, General Electric is almost out of this. So they, they have uh, partly understood. And this is where a company like General Electric can can change in that sense as a supplier. I think I've actually read that it's half the price. Renewable energy is now half the price. And wind is even cheaper than that. But half the price of um, uh, even the current... Uh, costs of coal without actually looking at investment costs. Uh, the, so take away the sunk costs and just look at the actual day-to-day uh, running cost and it's still half the price, which is quite amazing. So and what then, is... Sorry? Oh, and, and then talking about uh, the, the cost of climate change. That's that, not even included. That it, that is is even more extensive, as well as the p- particles in the atmosphere, which is killing a lot of people via asthma. Mm-hmm. What is the potential contribution to the global energy supply? Could we do the entire world energy need with wind? Well, we could do that. This is no no problem. Yes, the potentials are big enough. Uh, but of course, that is not something that uh, at least I would. Uh, uh, suggest because of course it, it depends you should always use renewables as a combination and um, look at optimizing the system and I mean the renewable energy is for us for for the amount of energy that we're using there's no it's unlimited if you want the limitation comes from also the material that we need for building wind turbines or solar panels. So there is some rational to kind of um, also uh, limit the, the way and be efficient. Um, and so in that sense, of course, um, instead of building wind turbines, uh, which may then sometimes there's no wind and you need big storage, it's same like with solar. It doesn't make sense only to use solar because during night you always need storage. If you connect and combine wind and solar, uh, for example, for sure, uh, you don't need during night that much storage capacity like when you only use solar energy, when you connect it with wind. And then also depending on, you are now living in Sweden, more in the north where there is less sunshine, but more wind. 
Um, then when you come closer to the equator, of course, there is more solar output. So we need a smart combination of this. And uh, certainly that is not a kind of uh, a trivial task to design a system for a certain uh, place. The general answer is is trivial. Yeah, We just use the best combination that we of renewables that we find at a certain place. If you have hydropower potential, Hydro is perfect as a storage, especially when it's already there and you're not talking about building new dams. Um, it's perfect in countries like Brazil or in parts of Australia like Tasmania, you have already big dams. Um, and other places where that doesn't exist, then you use, and I, I like very much the example of, of South Australia where you have um, now big batteries which are used as a kind of backup between sun and wind mainly. In the north, very north of Sweden, you actually have um, very still days when it's very, very cold because all the water in the atmosphere is already frozen out and landed on on the ground. And then, of course, uh, it's quite dark. So at that time, really, the hydro ki should kick in. And there's a massive hydro in all of Norway. So really, if there was a little bit of cooperation between Sweden and Norway there, it's it's still fairly local. And why don't we just talk about the incident um, of wind parks up in, the, up in Norway, where the Same was actually against the wind parks and how that actually affects the reindeer and the reindeer herding and their, their ability to eat. And that is actually why there's been a lot of um, people against wind parks there. And it doesn't really make sense to put massive wind parks up where there's hardly any people. Like, of course, you could put a local wind, you could put a local generator. But to transmit that wind generation for easily, is it 500 kilometres or maybe 1,000 kilometres? You once actually, once again, creating high voltage uh, transmission lines from uh, the think, very north of Sweden and north of um, Norway. I mean, first, uh, I, I must say, uh, start saying that um, I will f secondly then say why I don't think this has been done in a, in a good way. In Norway, people should primarily protest against exploiting gas and oil because Norway is one of the biggest uh, exporters, producers, exporters, and with that, one of the major causes of climate change in Europe. Let's just agree on that. Um, of course, the way this wind farm or wind project has been done, I think this shows us exactly what I mentioned before. Uh, the government, the investors have been ignoring the decentralized character and obviously ignoring the needs and requirements of the local population. And the local population also, I'm sure, wants to have renewable electricity, but doing it just without consulting, obviously, and without balancing these things uh, is, of course, really a, a good, bad example. Let me call it like this. Yeah, I would ex I, I would agree with that. And in fact, I, my understanding is that um, the installations up in Norway, 
the very northern area up near where the Sami people are, are formally illegal. So the um, demonstrations really are trying to use the law to help themselves and still they're being battered, which is really sad. I mean, again, I would also argue in favor of ecocide and, and extracting oil and gas. And then let's please also protest in, at the drilling platform at, in the North Sea. Uh, but again, this and one of the investors, and this is really somehow ironic, one of the investors is uh, the the utility of the city of Munich, uh, where in Bavaria there is a big debate in ongoing in Germany. Uh, Bavaria has hardly invested in wind farms, and they set up uh, uh, minimum distance rules, which are obviously the quite in contrast to what people have been doing now in the north of Norway. So instead of investing in a wind farm uh, in the north of Norway, I think uh, Bavaria should invest in wind farms and there's enough wind produced locally. And then you also need less power lines. And th that that is an, um, a kind of uh, certainly uh, not just an option, that that should be the imperative that you really, if you want to use energy, you should use your own place where you live and the resources resources are there everywhere and not kind of try to and we talk about in some cases now of course when when the discussion starts uh, importing from whatever african sources and then people in africa may not have access that of course cannot be a model for the future so i think this this case but I still hope that they find a reasonable solution now in consultation with the Sami people. But this case is really showing us how ignoring decentralized character is leading us all into a mess. I, I fully agree. Really has an interest. But I mean, I want to kind of end, and I know when I look at the time that uh, time is always running uh, with the, the the positive vision that. I have for the future, and that is really that wherever we live in our communities, whether it's a small uh, village that is easier because you have usually more land, or it's a bigger city, we use the renewable resources and wind is part of that to cover the needs that we have. That's possible. That's technically possible. It, it will create more wealth, maybe more satisfaction. And uh, in a in a way that stops uh, destroying the climate and the environment where we are, and and also that would also uh, create a more efficient way of using energy. And with that, also the resources that we need for that. Yes, and that's hopefully how a hundred percent renewable energy would look a world where it's actually far more local control, <laughs> local decision-making, yeah. and mm -hmm. uh, local creation of your own energy. Yeah, and that's a big, uh, just look at again from kind of economic uh, uh, numbers, the shares of energy economy that just redistributes a lot of the value created. By the way, and maybe as my last comment, the um, 
I, I came across the number that 40% of the vessels of our oceans are currently used for transporting energy. 40% of those vessels are transporting oil, LNG probably at the moment. So I think this shows us if, you, if we use local resources, almost half of those vessels are not needed anymore with all the material that that means and also pollution that that brings just by, and that doesn't take any wealth away from anyone. Just use our local resources. And we will do a lot primarily now for the oceans. But this is the, the, the relation that many people are not at all aware of. And a lot for ourselves. It's not just for the ocean. We're actually giving ourselves the, the possibility to drive our own lives. Thank you, Stefan. I really appreciated talking about this with you. Thank you, Shanine. It's been a great pleasure. And uh, yeah, I, I think the our complimentary view on this has been very fruitful. And I hope the people enjoy listening to us. So with this, I would say thank you also to our audience for today. And we will come back in two weeks and announce, as usual, our next guest on our social media channels. Thank, thank you, you very much. Goodbye.